Well, good morning, Four Corners, and to all of our children as they leave. Uh, it was a blessing to have them in the service last week, and uh, I, I had the privilege of being able to see at least one kid's drawing of the sermon, and uh, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, that at least some of the adults, that at least some of us are kind of processing it in, in the vivid ways that some of these kids do. It's incredible uh, to see the way sometimes these kids draw out ideas. Just a reminder of the depth of imagination and how God has gifted us human beings with that incredible way of putting things together and visualizing it. So uh, if you have one of those drawings, I'd love to see it from one of your children. It is a blessing to me for sure. So today we return to one of the most familiar stories in the entire Bible, which is Noah's Ark and the Flood. And this story basically runs from the beginning of Genesis chapter 6 and goes all the way up through into uh, and towards the end of chapter 9. And so we have Noah being introduced to us. Uh, chapter 5, verse 32, you can kind of look there. And after Noah was 500 years old, uh, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. He was introduced before that, up in verse 28, and then he's um, 29, that is. And then at, at verse 32, we get his sons mentioned. And then through, verse, uh, through chapter 6, all the way up until the end of chapter 9, and if you go to 9 Verse 28 and 29, after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So this is the, uh, essentially, when we are looking at the genealogy in chapter 5, we see in some ways that all of this flood narrative is, is part of that genealogy. And so we get, the, and he died, and he died, and he died. And then you get to Noah, the long story about the flood. And of course, the same is true of Noah Regardless of how righteous or blameless in his generation or how much he walked with God, Noah was also a descendant of Adam. Noah was also a sinner in need of a savior. And so we get to the end of chapter 9 and we see, of course, the consequence of sin being played out likewise in Noah's life and he died. But today, in the course of this narrative, we find ourselves in chapter 7. So if you will, please go there to chapter 7. This is not a series on the flood, for those of you who, who uh, might be visiting. This is a series on Genesis, and we just happen to be in this portion of Genesis at this time in the life of our church. Unfortunately, it is the case, as one commentator puts it, that many see the story of Noah... As no more than a children's tale. And maybe if we, if we dug into you a little bit, if we pushed into your mind a little bit, maybe that's where you're at. Maybe if the truth were told and we could dig into your psyche and we could ask and probe, maybe that would really be at the end of the day your view is that uh, the story of Noah has some moral value, uh, like maybe Aesop's, Aesop's fables, uh, but it is really, at the end of the day, just that, no more than a children's tale with some moral value there for our children. But far from being a mere 
children's tale, we find that Jesus and his disciples actually hold up Noah's Ark and the flood as a historical event. A literal historical event that took place in space and time that could be dated, that could be looked back to. They hold it up as a historical event that should point us forward to another event to come in the future. That's the way the flood, Noah and the ark, are treated in the New Testament. So let me just give you two uh, quotations, one from Jesus as quoted in Matthew, and one from the Apostle Peter. So this is Jesus in Matthew 24, verses 37 to 39. Actually, we just read this, but I want to bring it to you again. This is what Jesus says. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, Until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying there was an event that took place on a particular day in space and time. And it is meant to point us forward to an event that will take place on a particular day in space and time. The coming of the Son of Man, Christ himself. This is what the Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter 3, verses 5 to 7. The heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Clearly, Genesis and God said, and we get that there. He goes on, and that by means of these... The world that then existed was deluged, flooded with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire. This world stored up for fire, Peter says, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So when we ask the question, what do we do with this passage of scripture? What do we do with Genesis chapter 6 to 9? How do we appropriate that? How do we think about it? How do we fit it into our our worldview? How do we fit it into our overall understanding of the Bible and God's intentions and purposes? I think this gives us a key to understanding it that it is meant to be meditated upon in order that we might look forward to the day of God's judgment at the coming of his glorious son. And in light of the flood acting as a pointer to future judgment, and catch this, it should be no surprise, no surprise to us that the world dismisses this story, that the world mocks this story, tries to smother This story hates this story, twists all the historical and geological evidence for this story. Should be no surprise. Why? Because it is a story pointing to their own doom. In other words, let me say it this way. 
This story, not a mere children's tale, this story of the flood reminds the unbeliever of his own destiny apart from God. And so we have a particular heart disposition. This is my point. We have a particular heart disposition at work in the world when it comes to the story of Noah and the ark and the flood. It is a heart issue because it points the person forward to the fact that one day the flood of God's judgment is going to come and as Jesus says, sweep them away. That is the way we are to understand the flood. It is a pointer. And last week, the spotlight was on Noah and the ark in chapter 6 verses 9 to 22. Really, that's the focus of those verses. Those verses begin with Noah and end with Noah. And throughout those verses is the recurring word ark, ark, ark. And so we know that, that really that's what we need to be focusing in on as we go through to the end of chapter 6. By God's favor or grace, first occurrence of grace in the Bible, chapter 6, verse 8. By God's grace, Noah is found righteous in a wicked generation. God will destroy the world but he will save Noah and his family. So God commands Noah to build the means of salvation, an ark. And our passage ended last week with this very important note in verse 22. Verse 22 of chapter 6 says this. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And this is one of the most instructive, and it's a refrain, it's constant throughout this this section of Genesis. This is a, a constant idea, and this is very instructive for us. And in fact, as Kent Hughes comments, one of the main points of this story is to demonstrate what kind of man or woman is saved from judgment. Now, this is very important, because we are to understand, as we look at Noah... We have a a prototype of the rescued person. We have a prototype of of the person who does not come into judgment, as Jesus will say, but passes from death unto life. Noah gives us a portrait of the person who is not judged. And what emerges about this person, he's the one who obeys God. More specifically, a faith generated obedience. And this reminds us, I think, of Jesus's words in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember when we came to the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, and we heard this from Jesus in verse 21 of chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You get that? In other words, Jesus is being very clear here. That no one ends up in heaven who was not obedient to God in this life. And that begins first and foremost with the obedience of faith. And in fact, that's the pervasive feature of obedience. Paul talks about the obedience of faith. To turn away from sin towards Christ is to obey God. Because what is God's will? What is God's one great command? Believe in the Son. He's put forth his Son. And he says, trust him, believe in him. And that is the heart of obedience. But I think this challenges us because it tells us that 
if we live a life that is just carefree, we may say we're Christians. We may be able to go back to an emotional experience at, at some camp. We may be able to go back to a childhood in the church. We may be able to, to identify some maybe emotional responses to certain hymns or whatever. But really the mark of a person who escapes judgment, i.e. a Christian, i.e. a believer, the mark of such a person is really quite clear and it is obedience. We do what God says. We do what he says because we belong to him. Because he owns us. An incredible idea in the scriptures that we're slaves of God. He owns us. He has the rights to our lives because he's paid for our lives with the death of his own son. With his son's blood. He's purchased us. Redeemed us from sin and death. And now he owns us. Are you owned by God? Are you owned by God? If you are. You need to know that that will show up in specific ways. Ways of obedience. A way of life that loves and listens to his word. So last week was Noah and the ark. And this week we focus in on the flood itself. And so if you look at chapter 6, we're really meant to, to, to pinpoint Noah and the ark. And then as we move into chapter 7, the focus becomes the flood. This particular Event And so the title for the sermon this morning is simply The Flood. And we're going to look at all of chapter 7, verses 1 to 24, as we take in the flood as a whole and walk through various parts of this passage. So if you will, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Genesis chapter 7, verses 1 to 24. This is God's word. It is for our edification and for the purpose of equipping us for every good work. Verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens, also male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights. And every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Build an ark? Yes, Lord. Enter the ark? Yes, Lord. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. Verse 7. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground. Two and two male and female went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. And rain fell upon the earth 
40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two, of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Verse 17. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. That's 20 or 22 or so feet. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's um, pray to our Father in heaven and just ask Him to use this chapter this morning to minister to each of us and to, uh, to grow us in our faith in the Lord Jesus and to call people to Himself. Uh, I, would, I would hope that there's not a single person in this room who is unsaved, uh, but the, the chances of that are, are pretty slim. And so the prayer... One prayer this morning is that God would draw unbelievers to himself to trust in himself, to trust in him, to believe in Jesus. And so if you're here this morning and you're just saying, I don't don't know where I'm at with God, just ask him now. Pray in your own heart. Pray to God now. Say, God, speak to me. Have mercy on me. Speak to me. God is gracious and kind. He is loving and merciful. He is faithful to his word. So let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you call sinners to yourself by your grace, sovereignly saving some, just as you did in the days of Noah. Father, we thank you that you have saved many of us from our sins. You you have taken away our sin. You have put it on Jesus And you have given us his righteousness before you so that when you look at us, you see righteous. Father, we praise you for that. And even Noah, the righteousness of Christ imputed to Noah so that he could be blameless before you. Father, we're so grateful for your glorious gospel. 
And we're thankful that from Genesis 1-1 all the way to the end of Revelation, that Christ rises above the text of Scripture, that he rises out of, he grows out of every page of Scripture to tell us that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can know you or come to you apart from him. So, Father, we pray that you would work in each of us this morning to, to know Christ and to abide in him. Father, we ask your forgiveness on our sins. We pray that you would protect us from the schemes of the devil. We recognize, Father, that there is much temptation coming our way. And even this morning, we know that there are temptations coming our way to govern our minds and govern our hearts. And Father, we just ask that you would be merciful to us in clearing out our minds. We know we don't deserve it, Father. We know we deserve death. We know we deserve judgment. But Father, we pray that you would be merciful even this morning to remove the veil, to to wash away the distractions, to speak deeply into our individual circumstances. Father, we need you this morning, and we know that it is a special thing when the people of God come together to worship. And Father, this this is not to be taken lightly. So God, be with us this morning. Minister to us by your Holy Spirit and by means of your holy angels. We pray for your work to be accomplished here. We love you, Lord. We thank you for first loving us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So before we kind of dig into some of the details of these verses... What I want to do is just give you a a kind of synopsis of the whole chapter because we could get lost in some of the details I'm going to try to to bring out if we don't get a sense for, okay, what's a, a basic outline of this entire chapter? So let me just draw it for you very quickly this way. Verses 1 to 10, God commands and instructs Noah to enter with his family and to take the animals with him. Noah obeys God. That's essentially what we have in the first 10 verses. God's command, Noah's obedience. What God commands him to do, once again, just as with the ark, Noah does it precisely as God told him to do. So a little bit of a reiteration of what we already seen with Noah. That's verses 1 to 10. Verses 11 to 16, the flood begins with Noah, his family, and representatives of all animal kinds safely on board the ark. That's where we're at when we get to the end of verse 16. And then verses 17 to 24 give us the flood powerfully covers the earth and destroys all life. So that's essentially what goes on in chapter 7 of Genesis. But as we try to take in and digest these 24 verses, I think we are meant to see three major things about the flood. And you will see this. In your bulletin, three major things about the flood that we really can't miss as we go through these 24 verses in some detail. And so the three things are controlled, careful, and catastrophic. The flood is a controlled event, it is a careful event, and it is a catastrophic event. So I want us to see each of those things as they emerge from the text of chapter 7. So let's look first at controlled. The flood is a controlled event. What do I mean by controlled? 
Well, you cannot read this flood narrative without having your mind brought back to creation. And especially Genesis 1-9. We were in there uh, quite a while ago. I guess it was January when we were working through these verses. But Genesis 1-9, this is day three. And this is what we read on day three. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. So what do we have at that point on day three is we have a watery world. Watery world. And what God does is he takes the water and he moves it into bodies of water and the land appears. It's already there. It emerges as God gathers up the waters into seas. And now what we're meant to see when we come to Genesis chapter 7 is the reversal of that, the undoing of that. Some people call it uncreation or decreation. Essentially what happens is the waters then cover the earth again. And now the whole earth is covered once again with water. Back to the beginning of day 3, at least as far as the surface of the earth is concerned. And just as the creation account in Genesis 1 put God on display, so too does the flood account. Remember at the very beginning of our series on Genesis, we talked about how God is really the focus of this book. That as we go through this book, we're meant to behold God. We behold him in creation. We behold him in salvation and judgment. We behold him in covenant. We behold him in his faithfulness to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we see that at the end of Genesis in his incredible providential faithfulness to Joseph. As God is with Joseph, doing good things for Jacob's family through the evil of Joseph's brothers. God is carrying through his plan. The whole of Genesis, as with the whole of the Bible, is about God. And so we are beholding our God. And God is put on display very clearly in creation, the creation account of Genesis 1. But this is also very much the case when we come to the flood account. And one of the things that it shows us is that God is entirely in control. What, what, it, what are these chapters communicating to us about God? What are they telling us? One of those things is that God is in control. The flood is a controlled event. It is controlled by a sovereign God. This fact is present all throughout chapter 7, and you simply cannot miss it. This is a God who is driving everything. He's in control. And I want to just cite for you four ways in which God shows himself to be in control as we go through chapter 7, particularly in the first half or so of it. So here are the four. Four things that tell us God is in control. First, we see God's control in the agency itself. Who or what floods the world? Let me say this. This is not an act of nature. This is an act of God. Now, we are to understand nature as kind of a, uh, an efficient cause. Uh, nature as being the thing that actually does it. It is, in fact, water, created substance that covers the world. But the, the agency here is not just natural happenings or occurrences. It is God. It is God's hand. It is God who does this. Verse 4 I will send rain on the earth. 
I will blot out. God is not just sort of trying to hold the reins of a crazy nature, a crazy environment, hold it back, push it forward. No, he's entirely in control. This is his world, and he is using it to accomplish his purpose in destroying the world in this way. So we see his control in the agency itself. Second, we see his control in the timing. In the timing. We see the timing that the flood is a scheduled event. It's on the books. It is happening entirely according to plan. It doesn't just sneak up. Now Jesus does say that it sneaks up on those who are not pursuing God. Those who are eating and drinking and marrying. They're not talking about gluttony, I don't think. Not talking about getting drunk. Just talking about life. Living life apart from God. Doing what all of us human beings do in our daily lives. Just going about, moving around, doing things. And it is the flood that comes upon them like a thief in the night. So in that sense, the flood is sneaky. But... From God's perspective, it is entirely planned. We see this all over the place. Verse 3, which in uh, chapter 6, verse 3, we read that, that man's days shall be 120 years. And I told you that that could refer to the lifespans, right? We know that eventually lifespans will get much lower, and, and we'll see some figures that live around 120 years, and, and we'll see in the Psalms 70, maybe 80 years. Uh, that, that's one way of taking it. I actually take it to mean that from the time God decrees to do this until the time of the flood itself is 120 years. And we see that with the, the, the age of Noah. When Noah gets mentioned, he's 500 years old when he has his sons, and he's 600 years old when the flood comes. And if God decreed that 20 years before that, before Noah had his sons, then we have 120 years. There's debate on that, but... I think what we see here is that the day shall be 120 years. And then we get to chapter 7, verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life. And we also see it in the language of verse 4. In seven days, 40 days and 40 nights. This is on the divine calendar. It's marked in. It will happen. Verse 11. Listen to this language. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day. This is entirely controlled by the God of time. Not the God who's in time or subject to time, but the God who created all time and all matter that moves around and gives rise to time or denotes time. God is over all time and he has scheduled this event very specifically. And we find that with Noah being a herald of righteousness, as Peter tells us, and God waiting patiently at that time, that God is, is showing his patience with the world, even during that 120 years. And I've heard some talk about how the ark was so large that people could have, people could have repented and, and come on to the ark. People could have repented and turned as Noah was a preacher of righteousness. They could have said, yes, I will follow God. And God would have welcomed them into the ark of his salvation, but they did not. Noah preached righteousness, and he was scorned and mocked. No one listened. And when the time of God's patience was up, the waters came. So we see it in the agency. We see it in the timing. Third, we see it in the fulfillment. 
We see that God is in control because everything he says will happen, happens. Look at verse 4, chapter 7, verse 4. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights. And then drop down to verse 10. After seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In verse 12, and rain fell upon the earth. How long? Forty days and forty nights. Matthews, uh, Kenneth Matthews, uh, one of the commentators on Genesis, whom I've quoted before, says this, which I think is insightful. Our passage shows not only Noah's exemplary faith, which it does show that, but also the good reason for such faith. God is proving himself trustworthy at every point. At every point, God is explaining to Noah what is going to happen, and it happens precisely as God said. And that shows that God has the power to say what is going to happen in the future, and God has the power to make that happen. He's sovereign over all the events of nature, all the events of of human beings, all the happenings of human beings, the desires of human beings. He's over all of that. He reigns supreme as the sovereign king, and he brings all of this to pass just as he promised. Everything God has promised in the Bible will come to pass. Everything. So we see it in the agency, the timing, the fulfillment, and then finally... We see it in the characters. The main character, of course, in all of this is Noah himself. Verse 5, and Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. What is going on here with Noah's obedience? Is this kind of an independent variable? Is this this thing out here that's just, God is just, everything God is doing is dependent on the desires and will of Noah. We are meant to see Noah willfully choosing God willfully loving God, willfully believing in God, willfully obeying God. But we must understand that Noah's obedience is a result of God's grace. We see that in verse 8. It is a result of God's sovereign working in Noah's heart. Let me say it this way. God is king over Noah's heart. Just as he's king over the waters, he's king over all that happens, he's king over this man's soul, this man's desires. God is working through Noah to accomplish his purposes. Behind Noah's obedience is God's sovereign control over the situation, down to the individual decisions of this one man. So we see it in the character of Noah, but we also see it in these other characters, the animals. It's incredible. When you read uh, before in verse 20, says, of the birds, in chapter, this is in chapter 6, before we even get to chapter 7. Why are all these, where are these animals coming from? What's happening here? Does Noah have to go out and hunt them all down with a net? Is he out there trying to find the bear kind and the cat kind and trying to find, you know, the, the, the ox kind? Is that what he's doing? Hunting for frogs and bees and everything else? No. It says in verse 20 of chapter 6, Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, and of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. 
What that means is that the hand of God is behind the coming of the animals. It would have been an incredible experience for Noah and his family to see these animals appearing just as God brought the animals to Adam to name them. God brings the animals to Noah, a kind of, a kind of second Adam, not the second Adam who is Christ, but a kind of a, a reiteration really of Adam. And God brings all of these animals to him. God is sovereign over these animals creatures. Do you see this? All of these facets of God's sovereign control over this entire event. The flood grows our faith by putting God's sovereignty and his trustworthiness on display. And here's what we need to constantly remind ourselves. The God who can orchestrate this, the God who oversees all of this, is the God we call Father. That is an amazing thing. We forget that so much when we worry about every little thing. I mean, we worry about the smallest things. Forget the big ones, like what's the doctor going to say about what's going on in my body? Or how in the world am I going to avoid filing for bankruptcy? Or what's going to happen to my unsaved child? I mean, these are, these are weighty matters, big things. But I think we are to understand that even those things should not be worried about in the sense which Jesus talks about in Matthew 6. But we worry about everything. Maybe you're worried about where you're going to go to lunch today or how you're going to get the house clean this afternoon or whatever. Worried about so many things. We worry often like unbelievers. Not to say we are, but we struggle. We need God's grace. We need God's help every day. We carry around the old sinful person who does not trust God, but trusts self and is fearful of everything and clings to this existence as though it's all that matters. We carry that person around every day. And then a story like this comes along and reminds us God's got everything, everything under his sovereign control. So we see that the flood is a, it is a controlled event. Secondly, we see that it is a careful event. It is one thing to say that God is in control. But that's not the whole picture. That's just part of the picture. We could have a sovereign God who acts recklessly. A kind of omnipotent figure who has all control but is just reckless or capricious in his Ways with man, unpredictable, reckless, haphazard, or just simply has no concern for his creation, does whatever he'd like and doesn't care about anything or anyone. He could be in control, but that's not the whole picture. You can read various ancient flood myths, and they're all over the world giving testament to the fact this actually happened. You can read those various Flood myths, the Epic of Gilgamesh being the most famous, but you find them all over the world. In the Americas, you find them far in the east, ancient Mesopotamia. You find them among the Greeks. You find them everywhere. And that's exactly what you get. You get these kinds of gods who are reckless and haphazard and self-centered in the way we understand it. You get... All of this in those myths, but not in this God, not in the Lord. 
It is not just control that we see in these verses, but control and care. This is also a careful event. It is a controlled event, but it is also a careful event. And what do I mean by that? I think we see this in a number of places. So I'm going to give you a few of these here. Where do we see God's care in this event? Well, first, God is careful to distinguish. That is what it means, essentially, to be just. To be just is to be able to distinguish right from wrong, good from bad, evil from righteousness, righteousness from unrighteousness. And to to act in accordance with that distinguishing discernment. To act in accordance with that. And that is precisely what we see with God. God really does distinguish between the righteous and the unrighteous. Between the sheep and the goats. As Jesus will tell us. God is not indifferent to our actions. We read in Romans 2.6. God will repay each one according to his deeds. On that day. When God judges the world, there will be very specific judgments for every single sinner. Very specific judgments for every person who does not know Christ. And they will be perfectly just. And they will be in accordance with the life that that person lived. Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. And listen to this. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. Okay. And listen to this. That he rewards those who seek him. In other words, that he judges according to the heart. He judges rightly. And he makes distinguishing. He, he, make, he distinguishes. He sets people in different categories. According to his own grace. But he does this based on our actions. So we see a God who is careful to distinguish. He's not just throwing water around. He's distinguishing. Second, God is careful to preserve the repeated emphasis on entering the ark. We get throughout this passage. And it's so repetitive. And it's one of the reasons, as I started this week to go through this passage, I just thought, how does this thing break up? It's just so repetitive. And how do these pieces fit together? And it's meant to bring these ideas that are repeated constantly to the surface to help us to see clearly what's going on. And listen to all the times you get this emphasis on entering the ark. Verse 1. Go into the ark. Verse 2, take with you the animals. Verse 7, they went into the ark. Verse 9, the animals went into the ark with Noah. Verse 13, they entered the ark. Verse 15, the animals went into the ark with Noah. It's constant language of go in there, go in there, get in there. They're in there, and all of them are in there. They're in there now. Why? It is meant to remind us that God is being very careful to preserve Preserve what? Well, there's layers to this. God is careful to preserve his creation. We know that God cares about all of creation. And we see that in Genesis 1. God created it. He said good. He created good, 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 good. At the end, very good. And so we know that God is careful to preserve his creation. He actually cares about those frogs, bees, and bears, antelopes, and so forth. He cares about these creatures But going a a bit deeper, we see that God cares for his image bearers. That God is careful to preserve his image bearers. That is, Noah 
Noah's wife, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their wives. They will perpetuate the human race. That's why we're here. We all go back to Shem, Ham, Japheth, and Noah. We all go back to this point in history. So that's another layer, the image bearer. But also we see God being careful, listen to this, careful to preserve worship. What does God tell Noah to to bring into the ark? He tells him to bring these clean animals and these unclean animals. Why is that? What's the purpose of all of that? God is preserving worship. He is preserving a kind of worship that points towards the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus. He is preserving a a, a form of worship where animals are sacrificed as a picture of the fact that we take our sin and we transfer it to that creature and that creature dies for our sins. Substitutionary atonement which points to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of God. The world. God is careful to preserve worship that points to Christ. This is incredible. We also see, most importantly, that God is careful to preserve the seed. Who does God see when he sees Noah and he sees these three sons? He sees his precious son. He sees Christ, the word of God eternal. He sees the line. The seed, the promise, he never lies. And he promised that there would be a descendant of Eve who is now dead. She's gone, but one of her descendants would crush the serpent's head, would crush Satan. And God is not going to let that go undone. And so we see God preserving the seed so that he might preserve the defeat of the devil and have for himself a people for his own possession forever. We will exist in the presence of God forever. It will happen in and through Christ, the seed of Eve. So we see that God is careful to distinguish. He's careful to preserve. But we also see that he is careful to assure. And I love this. I love this. Probably the most striking words in this whole passage come at the end of verse 16. Here they are. And the Lord shut him in. So intimate. Incredible intimate words. The, I don't even know what that looked like. We can imagine, did God send a wind and the door just slammed shut? Did God seal it somehow? Did God appear in the form of Christ as he appears in the Old Testament to various people? We don't know. But what we know is this. He shut the door. And I guarantee you that door did not leak. Not one drop of water came through that door because the Lord shut it. God is careful to assure. Assurance. This gives us assurance of the truth that we read in Proverbs 18.10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it. And is safe. And that's exactly what Noah would have felt. When that door shut tight behind him. Not because Noah had to take a a rope and pull it shut. And make sure it was sealed. Did Did I really seal it? This is our assurance. God is our assurance. Did I really seal it? I don't know if it's tight. I don't know if the water will come in. 
He didn't have to worry about that. Not one bit. Because God did it. God sealed it. God made sure that they were safe. The God who sealed the door would be with Noah. And he would see to it that at some point that door would be opened to dry land. And what I'm trying to communicate to you here is that this shutting of the door would have assured Noah of what we read later in verses 17 to 24. I'll string these words together for you. The waters increased and bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth. This thing is floating. The ark floated on the face of the waters. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. It worked. And God's shutting of the door would have communicated to Noah and his family, I'm with you. You're going to be okay. So what do we learn from God's care here? Well, the sovereignty of God, his control, is worked out in human history through his love for his people. God is not just a, a, a control freak as we would understand it in our own sort of human interactions. That is not God's ultimate. That's not God's ultimate. God's ultimate is love. Love first for his own glory. And how is he glorified? Since he has made man, he is glorified through those whom he has created. Not that God before the world was created needed man. God was glorified forever. He never needed us. But he he made us in his own image. And now he graciously works all things out for his glory through our good. And this tells us that this God who's in control works with love directed towards his people. Love, grace, mercy, kindness, compassion, faithfulness, all of these things are seen in this passage as God shuts that door and preserves his people. So we see that God is in control, that God is careful. This is a controlled and careful event. But thirdly, I want us to see before we finish up this morning that it is a catastrophic Event. Look at verses 17 to 24. Verses 17 to 24. I'm going to read all of these. I'll read them rather quickly, but I want you to just get the, the sense. I want you to feel the weight of these verses. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. You have to feel the punch of these verses. What we read here makes clear to us that this flood was catastrophic. It was a controlled event, a careful event, but here it's very clear that it was absolutely cataclysmic. It was catastrophic. It was disastrous. And I think it is catastrophic in two clear ways from this passage. Two clear ways. It is powerful and it is universal. First, 
in terms of the sheer power exhibited. We see in verse 11, this description, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. This is pouring rain coming from above and gushing water coming up from the earth. By the way, the impact on the earth would have been incomprehensible. So, of course, if you think this flood is local, which we'll talk about in a moment, then you don't see, you don't, you don't see the geological evidence and the continental evidence being related to the flood. But if you understand this to be a literal, universal event, the impact on the earth, the impact on the land masses, on everything would have been enormous, incredible. We went to group this past Thursday night and the Smith's yard was entirely flooded. As you guys know, Thursday, it rained all day long. I, I saw, I, we were driving to, to group Thursday night and it just seemed like there was this one kind of farmland that was entirely overcome with water. The fence was covered and everything. That was just from a day of just some rainfall from the sky. This is 40 days and 40 nights of gushing water from the earth and water flowing down out of heaven would have had an incredible impact on the face of the earth. But in verse 18 and following, we read this about it. I want you to see this repeated word. Listen for it. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. Verse 19, the waters prevailed so mightily upon the earth. Verse 20, the waters prevailed above the mountains. Verse 24, the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. What is this language? This is the repeated word here. All these times that the word prevailed is mentioned. What is this word? Well, it's a military word for succeeding in battle. This is the language of conquering. This is the language of triumph. No one can withstand God's judgment. The waters prevailed because God's judgment is final. It always prevails. There is no escape from God. There will be no escape from God for the most powerful military leaders in the history of mankind. They all die and appear before God naked and weak and frail on earth, great and strong and mighty, commanding armies, killing at will. Before God, they are nothing. God prevails. This is the language of utter conquering. We see an image of this in Exodus 14, 28 with Egypt. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. God just took the Red Sea and he dropped it down on the army of Egypt and covered them with water. So we see that this is a powerful event. But we also see, secondly, as we finish up today, it is a universal event. It is catastrophic in that it is universal. I want you to hear the, listen to the comprehensive language, starting in verse 19. All the mountains, all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. All flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind, everything on the dry land. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth, not from a little patch of Mesopotamia, from the earth. God covered Georgia when he flooded the earth. He covered 
everything. This was a universal flood. And the text wants us to hear that loud and clear. We can turn it and twist it however we would like. But the text is so emphatic here that it wants us to see this is a universal judgment of the scale of Genesis 1 in reverse. This is the language of comprehensive judgment that brings the earth back to Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. Not entirely the case. Light's still there. Humans are still there. We got animals. But then it says this, and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It is again a watery world covered in water. So, what effect? As we leave here today, what effect should this have on the reader? Simply put, I think it's this. To fall on our faces in repentant reverence before God and to run to the ark of safety. That's how we respond to this heavy text. Not with indifference. Not with a a casual spirit. Not with, oh great, I learned some things about Noah's flood. Whoop. No. No. This tells us, sprint to the ark because the judgment of God is coming upon the earth and there is only one ark and it's Christ. He is the ark of salvation and in him we are sealed with God's Holy Spirit. And we have assurance through the Holy Spirit that we will, in the end, be safe. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your kindness to us in Christ. We thank you that he is a refuge for all of those who come to you. That we will not undergo your judgment because Christ took it for us. Thank you, Father, for the ark of safety. I pray for us this morning as a people gathered, Father, that you would be working even now as we leave this time of sitting under the instruction of the word and we go to the Lord's Supper and the affirmation of faith and to sing a song of response and the benediction that the truths of this passage would weigh heavy on our hearts and that we would look to you in unique ways, each of us, that we would obey you, Father, that we would be assured of your love for us as your people, that we would trust in your trustworthiness and your sovereignty, and that we would see you in all of your power as you did this, God, and that we would bow before you in holy reverence, reverential awe, and we would worship you as the king of the universe, and that we would turn away from our sins that ensnare us, that that you hate, you hate sin, God. Would we turn away from our sin to you, the living God? Would we walk according to your word? Would we walk worthy of the calling with which we've been called? Would we walk fully pleasing to you? Father, give us the grace we need to turn to you this morning, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.